I think we're live now. I just heard the ding. So now we're live. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Film Trooper Presents Film Marketing Fridays. Um, today's session is sponsored by Mr. Brad Pitt. No, not really. Again, <laughs> Brad Pitt was in the news a few weeks ago. He made a deal with Netflix to make a $30 million war satire film called War Machine. And the New York Daily News reported on this. They said, what is the downside to this deal? Well, the multiplex could increasingly become safe only for the big budget blockbusters, remakes, and reboots. So this could create a potential bubble, like a real estate bubble, a dot-com bubble. If all you have in the multiplex, the cineplexes, were big blockbuster films that cost a lot of money, well, two years ago, Spielberg said there's going to be an implosion. Mega-budget movies are going to go crashing to the ground, and that's going to change the paradigm. So, um, well, just recently, Fantastic Four was a gigantic flop. And, you know, if there's more films like that, uh, it would be interesting to see what will happen to Hollywood in terms of the mega-budget movies. So what happens if the Hollywood implosion does happen? Well, you can head on over to Amazon to check out this new book, how to make and sell your film online and survive the Hollywood implosion while doing it. If you just head on over to survivetheimplosion.com. Well, today's uh, session for Film Marketing Fridays, the topic is what is your unfair advantage? What is your unfair advantage? Hey everyone, uh, welcome. My name is Scott McMahon. I'm a fellow film trooper over at filmtrooper.com where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. And today my guest, is guest filmmaker uh, Thomas Lim over he's from Singapore but he lives and re resides just recently in Los Angeles so now you can say hi to everybody Thomas. hi everybody I'm Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so, Scott for having me here no pleasure the pleasure is all mine um, yeah so I want to get into your questions real quick mm -hmm. and then um, well but before we do that we probably should show off a little bit about uh, you know how you got to Los Angeles and the film that you made in Singapore in the in the Asian markets. Um, I'm going to show a little bit uh, the the website real quick. Sure. Um, your, you know, your production company. So you can see this, right? So you see this is your site and mm -hmm. you have this film, the feature film Roulette City. And I'm going to do this uh, mosaic real quick, this okay. mode here, just because you had like over 100 press, you know, um, writings and, and material written up about your film all over the Asian uh, film market. And so it's very impressive because you're not only the producer and director, you're also the actor in the film. So that's right. Yeah. Yes. So I just want to show everybody this. So if you can tell us a little bit, what is your experience with uh, Roulette City and how did it, uh, you know, what was your experience with the Asian film market that brought you to Los Angeles? Mm -hmm. Well, Roulette City is a feature film that I made uh, that was released three years ago in 2012. And uh, it is a rather compact feature film. It's 77 minutes only. And I did it on an extreme low budget. And I shot it in a place called Macau, which is next to Hong Kong. I think most people know Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and in Macau, I think the community was very, uh, was very welcoming towards a foreigner, a foreign filmmaker who decided to shoot his film there. And uh, the press was very... Um, very, very welcoming towards me too. And I think that was one of the reasons uh, it, it created excitement in the town when I was shooting there. And then subsequently, when the film was released first in Japan commercially, theatrically released in Japan, and then Macau, and then also Singapore, and also over TV in Macau, that was uh, why it gathered a lot of press, I believe. So, mm -hmm. 
yeah, and um, for the film, like I cast a lot of my because I was from a theater background. I started mm -hmm. my career as an actor in 1999 in Singapore, and then I actually went to London to read theater. And I actually went to China after that in Beijing, where I lived for four years, and I acted for TV and film there. Okay, and that brings us to 2008 when I finally moved to Macau and I did, decided to make my first feature film, and which was Roulette City. So um, the budget was low, and we couldn't afford like really a good actor, uh, which had a who had a name. So for for the 20 days that we were shooting, actually, okay. Eventually, uh, I decided to cast myself in it one day before we sh we before we decided before production <laughs> because I I was just trying really hard to like just trying to nail down an actor before production. But uh, the day before production, we had no other so to speak, no other choice, and I. Because I knew this, I wrote the script as well, so I knew the script really well, and I was coming fresh off TV series in, in China, so I was feeling, uh, at tip-top form in terms of like acting. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I thought that yeah, I might as well just go for it. I've only seen delay production. Yeah, I've only seen the trailer. It looks fantastic, and like it said, mm, it's um, you. the you know gritty. Yeah. Um, you know, suspense, uh, thriller, drama. You know, set in that city. Uh, yep. Which gives us a very, you know, exotic flavor for those of us in, in the United States looking at it. Um, and your, gosh, my God, your English pr pronunciation is amazing. I, oh, I'm great. from this country, and I'm, I'm only half Asian. My mom's from Thailand, and I still can't. Oh, you're Asian. You have Asian. Oh, I didn't I'm know half. that. My, okay, yeah. cool. I, make, <laughs> I make a joke that um, I have a tendency to just butcher the English words because I get stumbled. I my. I get hung up on some words okay. and it's only because I've made fun of my mom my entire life when she was, you know, when I was growing up just because uh -huh. she had the, the really broken English and, uh, you know, now it's karma. Now I'm just payback. I just, <laughs> but I listen to you. I'm like, I have no excuse. I suck. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you speak really well. Like uh, pronunciation aside, you're, 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 you, you, you conduct your podcast really well, which is how I found you. And which is why, which is why, which is why I, uh, listen to a lot of your episodes when I'm driving my car. Oh, cool. Yeah. But I hope, well, thank you. <laughs> no, they were so all very useful information. Very cool. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's get into some of your questions and, yep. uh, and we'll, we'll, you know, tie it back to your experience as uh, an actor in, uh, um, Hong Kong, director, right? No. It was Hong uh, Kong, right? Predominantly. And, uh, I'm now mainly a director. I don't do acting anymore, but then before I became a director, I was an actor in China. China was it? Was it mainland China or Hong Kong? I forgot what you mentioned. Uh, I did theater in Hong Kong, but I did TV and film in mainland China. Oh, okay, fantastic! Thank you so for both. the clarification. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. All right, so let's take a look at uh, the slides and your questions. Mm -hmm. um, you should be able to see this. Okay. Cool. So there you are. Oh, look at this nice picture. Guest filmmaker Tom Slim. Um, so the question number one you had was as a newcomer to the United States mm -hmm. and someone who's already been working, uh, doing work in Asia, how can I apply the resources and knowledge I already possess to filmmaking in the United States? Mm -hmm. We'll go over that one. Your second question is how do I effectively carry Asian elements that are, uh, that are there and are there and, any, thank you. I can't even read my own writing. And if there are any successful case studies of co-productions between like uh, United States or the North American company with an Asian uh, uh, production company, and we can go into those. Um, question number three is what is the culture of finding an agent or manager uh, here in the United States? Yep. So those are the three questions we're going to get over, uh, go over. So we'll go over the first one, which is 
well, how do you apply what you've already had success with in the Asian markets uh, in the territories where you're from, uh, you know, working from all over uh, to the United States? And, and how do you apply that? Well, one thing we can do is the overall topic of today's show is unfair advantage. And I, I want to piggyback this to uh, forget which, exactly which episode on Film Marketing Fridays we had, but I had a very long, epic, like two-hour session uh, with a digital marketer and filmmaker, Chris Reed. Um, and he mentioned this term, unfair advantage, and it's, it's sort of used in like business and marketing speak. So all of us have to dig deep, or if you're a company, you have to kind of ex extract what everyone's unfair advantage is. And really what the unfair, unfair advantage is, is like, what is something about you or your work uh, or the audience that you built that cannot be copied? Because eventually everything's going to be copied. But what is it that is so unique? And that usually translates to the unique selling proposition or the unfair advantage. So with that said, um, you know, we can look at this uh, deeper. I always like this picture because of visuals. So those of you who get a chance to see this, um, and not listen to it. I have this big, you know, title screen that says unfair advantage. And the next slide <laughs> is this picture of this gigantic uh, sumo wrestler yep. with this little boy in the sumo ring. And so this sort of very uh, quickly sum summarizes uh, this concept of unfair advantage. Now we can look at it on the left-hand side that the large sumo wrestler is a professional and his unfair advantage is that he is a professional and he's larger mass is larger mass. He should be able to overtake this small boy. However, when you're looking like we all can, we are the underdogs, you know, looking at like the behemoth of Hollywood, you know, represented by this character on the left side. And we might feel like we're small, nimble um, and we're playing in the same ring. We have to analyze what could be our unfair advantage. Could we move faster and quicker? than the huge you know, behemoth of uh, Hollywood. Um, you know, so those are things we have to take stock in. And really it comes down to really one question. If you really want to work and play in Hollywood is like, can you make Hollywood money? <laughs> <laughs> so let's see here. Uh, I want to I stay on this question of can okay. you make Hollywood money real quick. The reason I say that, there's two things that come from this. So we can look at the overall strategy of unfair advantage, and how can you make Hollywood money? Because really, that's if we simplify it, that's all that's, that's necessary. Um, you have your life experience, so we can kind of decide or decipher, maybe brainstorm, what could possibly be your unfair advantage um, that you um, can offer uh, to the community of Hollywood. Um, I should probably point out, like, you know, I don't live in Hollywood. I don't live in Southern California anymore. I'm up here in Portland, Oregon. And I did that because of the, this concept of being able to make a film online or any, any, basically make a film anywhere, but then upload it online and sell it to the world and try to build a sustainable li uh, lifestyle business from there. Mm -hmm. um, the, I've done my, my share of working in Southern California between San Diego and Los Angeles to understand that world. And is it really interesting because Hollywood can be such a bubble. I don't know how, how long you've been in Los Angeles now. Uh, about six months, so not long at all. Okay, so 
you have the unfair advantage of having enthusiasm. <laughs> you have so a lot of enthusiasm, yeah. Well, what mean, meaning that there's going to be a lot of people that have lived there are that are hardened by the system or mm -hmm. cynical or a little bitter or whatnot. Not everybody like that. There's a lot of fantastic people there. But sure. what happens is there is this sort of collective think tank or bubble that happens in the Los Angeles area where you feel like stuff is happening. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of buzz. There's a lot of action, like opportunity going around all the time. And it's always swirling. And you never know whether or not, you know, when you get involved with a group of people or somebody, whether or not that path is going to lead you to exact, you know, in a straight line to where you want to go. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's where the heartbreak sometimes comes in because, you know, nothing's a done deal. I mean, even if you have a deal with a, a studio, the you've heard these stories all the time. All of a sudden, a studio executive gets fired and any projects they had with them get fired along with it. You know, yeah. so it's just it's just so many obstacles you got to deal with in the Hollywood system. Um, obviously, there's enough people that are doing it. There's enough people that are working in the system. And, you know, collectively through the world, that's what we see as the industry. Now, if we... Strip it down to that basics of let's decide what your unfair advantage is, and then let's decide what the benefit of that unfair advantage is. Can you make Hollywood money? Um, and that's really when we anybody who's doing marketing, since this is Film Marketing Fridays, any type of marketing is designed to communicate um, a sales message, a message to a, a consumer. And what they try to do is they always say you got to sell the benefits, not the features. And the features are usually like facts, you know, like um, whatever. This phone has whatever. This phone is has whatever, 16 gigabytes. It runs on a certain processor, all that kind of boring stuff. But the but in terms of marketing, with the, when you sell the benefits, um, when you're advertising the benefits, you say this just is fast enough to, uh, that you can get on with your life, that it makes, you know, the benefits are that you have more time. Uh, you don't have to wait on apps loading up. You know, it has uh, your photos are fantastic. Because, you know, you don't have to go into the megapixels. You just have to say the photos look fantastic. That's the benefit to you. So the, this is me equating like basic marketing to you, meaning that you're in Hollywood and you're trying to penetrate the market and add value to the market. And the only value they want is how you can make the money. So let's talk a little bit about the unfair advantage that you might have that could benefit them. So you have a really interesting, you know, story being that where you trained, where you worked in before, um, I could see and that you have been a producer you're a writer producer now or director producer now, and you're looking to develop your projects, uh, in the States. So from an outsider's perspective, I could totally see somebody who's, wants to join forces with you and to potentially um, get a better idea of like, you know, maybe they never traveled to those markets before. Maybe they never worked in uh, Hong Kong or China or Japan or, you know, uh, Singapore. And they might look to you to like, well, what's really going on in there? Do you know anybody there? So that could be a, a stepping stone of an unfair advantage. So, I'll stop talking and let's see if we can uh, ask you, what do you think might be an unfair advantage that you have that other people don't have in Los Angeles um, right now? Uh huh. Well, um, one thing that, that, that kind of like jumps out at me uh, ever since I started to know more and more about 
Los Angeles and Hollywood and the independent filmmakers here is how hard it is to to get a theatrical release, to get your film feature films. I'm talking about commercially released in cinemas, even if it is only a limited release. Yeah, the amount of budget we need to 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 get to that level seems like astronomical. It's like too big for a a regular Asian production to afford. And I'm talking about I'm in my mind. I'm thinking like maybe it's upwards of 15 million England, and then maybe you need another few million for publicity before you can talk about getting a release. When you say 15 million, are you saying like a 15 million dollar for the production budget, or 15 million dollars on the prints and advertising, or the? I mean, uh, 15 million, 15 million for production. Yeah, and then maybe another few million for for advertising and prints. Okay. Okay. Uh, I believe that's 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 like the uh, the ballpark that we're talking about here in uh, probably Los Angeles. So so these figures when they jumped out at me, like I was totally surprised because in many Asian countries, I would say a three million US dollar production, excluding advertising, will probably give you a really good chance to get, depending on nation, a nationwide release mm -hmm. theatrically, and. As a filmmaker, like I always thought that my as a as a director, I always thought that I'm um I always think that I'm making a film for the cinema, for the for the big screen, and that is that is my goal for every film that I make. That hopefully it will one day uh, go on to the to the big screen. And I think my back to the question. I think my unfair advantage could be that if co-productions were to uh, be brought together that this film could possibly get a good theatrical release in the Asian country that it's co-producing with mm -hmm. and which could I think elevate the uh, the status of the of the production of the film to hopefully interest some sort of distribution in America that's that's what I'm thinking yeah. because because the budget that we need in Asia to to achieve that is a lot smaller than than in America. This is the first thing that I noticed when I after living here for a couple of months, I noticed that because when I was talking to people like at events and 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 like like at festivals and all that, and they were asking me like, how much do you think your next film will be made with? I think maybe in the range of like one million, and they were like, oh, that's really small budget, and I was like, oh, is that really small budget? <laughs> Because one million is a reasonably good, like a respectable budget in 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 Asia, yeah. in many parts of Asia, maybe even in China. Because like China, we we do get like a hundred million once in a while, not every year. So like a two or three million is still a very respectable budget. Like even in China or like especially in the smaller Asian countries like Singapore or like Taiwan, Hong Kong, the territories of China. Interesting. Mm. So I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't dig deeper a little bit more. So it's like, yeah, it's always it's, good. <laughs> it's like, all of a sudden I'm like a reporter. I'm not a reporter. I don't know where I become like a journalist, but, not, <laughs> but let's say um, it's very interesting because everybody needs to have like their dreams, you know, and, and believe me, that is the ultimate dream for all, almost all filmmakers. It's just like, can I make a film that has that theatrical release? Because there's something special and magical to have a film on a big screen with an audience that is getting an emotional reaction to it um and obviously you know it, it doesn't hurt any that the the um the allure and glamour that hollywood projects is very intoxicating you know to be part of that world 
um, you know, obviously you're in Los Angeles for like, you know, the, the last six months, I'm mm -hmm. sure you felt it. You, I'm, you, you probably, I don't know what your experience was like. Did you get a chance to like drive past all the major studios? There's only six. For sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and was it, well, that, how, how would you just share that experience? Because I think it's important to understand. So what was your initial reaction or did you have any experiences getting onto the lot or, uh, having meetings or. No, I haven't. I haven't been like inside the studios. But then, like my first experience of driving past the studio was actually last year when I came as a tourist. Mm -hmm. And then my friend who lives in Los Angeles drove me like somewhere. We were we were not going to the studios, but then, like five minutes into the drive, we were we were past. We were driving past one of the studios, and he was saying something like, "Oh, this is Warner Brothers." <laughs> okay. What? Like in in, this, in, uh, in in my in my neighborhood, <laughs> like yeah. It was yeah. It was uh, I was sort of in awe, in awe like uh, that first experience. But then now I'm now I'm used to it. Is all it, I mean all the studios are, are in Los Angeles. A lot of them are in Los Angeles. And um, right. yeah, so so it was a it was a great experience. I, I remember that that first feeling I had when when I realized that the studios were just like in the neighborhood, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 15 minutes away from a major studio. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's interesting. Um, because I, I definitely, I think those moments that everybody, if those who have an opportunity to have the Hollywood experience, um, it's neat because we, we've seen probably a lot of stories or movies or read books about the, the lore of the Hollywood studio system. I mean, it has so much history and it, there's something magical about that type of thing, obviously. And to embrace that feeling of awe and just how cool is this? Mm -hmm. So when you dig deeper is... You know, you, have to, you kind of have to use your imagination to project your out. Like, imagine you are working in the studio system. Mm -hmm. Is it everything that you hope it to be? I think the interesting story that just came out recently is the, 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 the I mentioned earlier, the gigantic flop of Fantastic Four mm -hmm. and what's happened to um, Josh, Tr Tr oh God, Josh Traft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Wait, director. What's his, yeah, what's his name? Oh. I'm going to do a quick. <laughs> Trank. No, it's Trank. Josh Trank. Trank. Okay. Thank you. I was thinking about uh, maybe a, a fellow uh, schoolmate I went to school with. <laughs> so anyway, Josh Trank, you know, I mean, I think what it is a, a cautionary tale of like, oh my gosh, so you have this. Or, you know, even um, Robert Rodriguez, you know, he one of he was originally supposed to direct years ago the Mask of Zorro film and then um, had to leave, you know, just because it didn't, things, his relationship with the studio system or whatnot, it wasn't working out. Um, so this stuff happens. And I, I guess the deeper question I'm asking is, um, mm -hmm. like, what is the purpose for all of us as filmmakers? Mm -hmm. um, the ability to make something, to share it with an audience. Without an audience, we have nothing. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, so we can make these films, but nobody sees it. It's then it's just for our own benefit. But if yeah. we can garner an audience and have an audience watch our work, um, what is it that we get from it? We, we want the audience to have a transformative experience and we as artists want to be transformed by their experience. So it's, it's at the, at the heart of it, at the core of it, that is what I believe if we have like all of us had, you know, therapy sessions, <laughs> you know, we would basically admit this to our therapist. Like that mm -hmm. is probably at the heart of it, why we want to make films. So let me ask you deeper. What, why do you want to make films? Well, I think um, previously I was an actor because I believed that was the way I wanted to communicate with the world around me. And then I, I mean, years passed and then 
I evolved, I mean, I changed too. And then I decided that I would then evolve to becoming a director, writer director, which is what I am now, because that was the, that is my chosen uh, medium of expression of, to interact with the world around me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's a bit abstract, but then that, that's, that's essentially what it is. And of course, like uh, I've lived in several countries over the past 14 years, and I have a lot of interesting experiences in my own uh, opinion to, to, to share with uh, whoever's interested in it. That's much deeper than what I would have said. <laughs> I, I think I've like like I would be dumb. I'd be like, I don't know. It was fun. Like I started acting just because it was fun. And then uh -huh. I, I guess I look deeper. Um, it's like this, you know, high you get when you come out of like performing a scene with somebody and a fellow actor, and it just felt great. Whether or not it turned out well or not, we don't know. But um, I think the the most childlike behavior from all of it it was just, it was just fun like yeah, yeah. making art making your movies uh short videos just to see something you made come together and have some sort of immortality was interesting and yeah, that's, that's yeah sorry go ahead oh go ahead you you got you were, i saw you get excited go ahead <laughs> <laughs> no, no, i just want i just sorry sorry for interrupting i just wanted to say yeah that those those were the, the same the same motivations made me want to be an actor because it was fun because it was uh something that I didn't i was curious deeply curious about how it would be like uh, but then, I mean, like all those previous uh, deeper explanations of why I wanted to be a filmmaker was sort of like in hindsight, like when I look back and I, and I observe my own change and I ask myself, why did this happen? And then I came up with that answer. Like that okay. was like, after a long process of like soul searching before I got to those answers. The initial <laughs> motivation is definitely because it's fun. Definitely. And I probably, because your first time performing or something, you did something and somebody had a reaction. Mm -hmm. And and then their acting is one form of audience feedback reaction. And then filmmaking is sort of like a next natural evolution of it because it's like it encompasses so much of all different art forms. And uh, if you're a fan of movies, you love movies because they transform you. And then the anytime somebody transforms you, you kind of find yourself like, can I do the same thing? There are people that love video games. They're just like what they, we call gamers that just play games, games, games. And, and it motivates them to like, I want to make my own game one day. You know, or musicians. I love music so much. It's just one day I want to be able to do this. So that's sort of inherent in a lot of us as artists. So that's why I was trying to dig deeper of what is the purpose for any of us to want to be filmmakers? And maybe it's that, I guess, illogical need to make something and get that reaction from somebody. So by digging deep, knowing what the core is, why we do any of this stuff, then you know, it's always great if you want to shoot for like a theatrical release and work within the Hollywood system. Um, but sometimes you get um, thrown to this, um, take a detour to exactly why you were wanting to do what you wanted to do, which is, can I just create something that an audience has a reaction to or it gets transformed by? How can I be as pure to that um, through line as much as possible? And so what i'm trying to get at is if you can stay true to that need then it then you you won't be necessarily always you may not be disillusioned by like false promises or hype um and that we can keep your head steady of like whatever i'm doing here cool can i level up is this a chance to make a million dollar movie or a three million dollar movie is the co-production i'm putting together are we all on the same page of where we want to go with this thing um and and you find yourself, you know, not compromising necessary as an artist. I don't know if really I'm saying all this kind of stuff makes sense. I, I'm just trying to get to the point of 
you know, managing our expectations mm -hmm. with an industry that is completely changing. It is mm -hmm. completely becoming the wild west. And, and like you said, it's becoming increasingly difficult, like you said, to get any moving to the theaters Yeah. because I just showed earlier, um, if Brad Pitt can't make a film for, uh, if Brad Pitt can't make a film for the theaters and he has to not to say anything bad, but he, he realized that the new deal is going to be with a Netflix space. Then the, the business and the medium, the mediums of distribution or of ex, of, of, of what they call it, uh, exhibitors. That's what I was looking for. The word of exhibitors. So that's what theater owners are. The National Theater Association, NATO, National Association of Theater Owners, NATO. Um, you know, they have a real need because, you know, people are leaving or not going to the movie theaters as much because there's so much more entertainment. So what have movie theater owners had to do? Some of them had to reduce the number of seats. So they make it really nice seats, but they had to up the price. Uh, there's a reason maybe Avatar was in Jurassic World did so well in terms of box office returns is that the per ticket prices were actually a lot higher, uh, not because of inflation, but because of 3D, because of IMAX, all these things. If you ever go to a theater, you know, it's like, here's the 2D version. Yeah. The standard version is like, whatever, 10 bucks. If you want to see 3D, IMAX, it's like, next thing you know, it's 23, 25 bucks. Yeah. So um, there's that world they have their world and it's shrinking in terms of the spectacle that gets to a chance to be yeah. presented in those theaters. Mm -hmm. You do, I'm sure you're aware of other services, uh, placement services such as tug and gather. Um, basically these are like crowdfunding uh, okay. services that if you want to get your th film in any theater across the in the United States, you can do that. Um, you just have to make sure that you have a team in place. X amount of people that are going to go to the theater at a certain time that they said they're going to go to and buy all these pre-sale tickets and your film can be shown and exhibited exhibited in these movie theaters because the reality is, is a lot of these movie theaters they have all this open time slots for movies to be shown and no audience to bring to it uh, Monday, Tuesdays, Wednesdays you know I mean they might have a lot of empty um, space that they just need somebody to fill so a service like Tug and Gather can curate uh, with filmmakers these audiences fill, fill those slots. It's uh, it's beneficial, and then people would have that theatrical experience. The only difference is it's such a independent you know um, effort uh, to work one theater at a time, where the Hollywood machine has the benefit of an ecosphere and a distribution system and a marketing system for many years to basically do like a shotgun advertisement campaign to get everybody there for the opening weekend, you know, mm -hmm. so that, that's that, that kind of stuff is beyond the yeah. independent and the Uber independent. Yeah. But what I'm getting at is you can still do that. You can still have that theatrical experience, whether or not it's going to be on a large scale or not. Um, and you know, multiple theaters, multiple screens, obviously that all depends on the ability to garner and win over uh, a distribution deal. And we're going to, I'll keep going because we're actually going to head into like some just basic film financing models. So everybody understands like where this stuff kind of comes in. So I'll jump over the slides real quick. Mm -hmm. So I really don't know if we answered the question of does any of us have an unfair advantage and does that unfair advantage, can that make you make Hollywood money? Um, 
So let's go into question number two, because we might be able to find this unfair advantage okay. even more deeper, deeply. Sure. So the second question you had was, how do I effectively carry Asian elements? And are there any successful case studies of co-productions? Well, I'm going to just kind of hit like some high level ones so we can kind of an analyze them a little bit. Um, there was a couple of years ago, Snowpiercer, yeah. yeah, like last year, Snowpiercer, as well as Black Hat. Obviously, these are, <laughs> we're talking about two mega stars here. They're both Avengers. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. But, the, you know, the story behind Snowpiercer is that it was the, uh, the Korean um, director, Bong Joon-ho, I think. Uh, the story behind Snowpiercer is that he, he became, uh, he really enjoyed this uh, graphic novel series back, that was published back in the early 80s um, from a French or Canadian um, author, uh, comic book artist. And they were able to, he, um, the director, um, Bong Joon, having, having an opportunity to work with a production company in uh, uh, South Korea, they were able to at least retain the rights, the licensing rights to the graphic novel. To, to And then they, then they were able to find funds to do the development of the script and then the uh, actually make the production. And they originally were trying to make it with the Canadian film board. Um, to honor the the graphic novel where it came from. Eventually, the film was shot, uh, got made, and then but everybody sees it as the Weinstein Company, you know, had Kelman. So, so majority of the development funds came from the uh, South Korean uh, company. I believe it's South Korea. I, I can tell you. Yep, South Korea. Thank you. So mm -hmm. they they were able to do the development funds and the most of the production funds. It wasn't until the Weinstein Company came in that they were able to do what they call like the back end funds and take all the credit anyway the uh <laughs> so black cat had an interesting story because michael mann is a well-known very well established uh film director writer director in hollywood for many years and you know chris hemsworth hemsworth is one of the biggest stars in the world um this film was interesting because it was based majority of it in hong kong or in china and um although they were able to get funds, you know, it was unclear where they actually got the funds, but you could tell because of the production of this film, um, it, they did a lot of shooting and a lot, half the cast was uh, of uh, an Asian cast. Mm -hmm. And apparently uh, Michael Mann donated about $38,000 to uh, some organization in China to allow this film to be played for like, I think four weeks at this lobby of this particular uh facility in china so obviously there was a co-production and arrangement working between michael mann and the and his company with uh the chinese um uh, government or businesses mm -hmm. so when we look at this type of stuff what are we really getting at we're looking at like the oh yeah when we look at this stuff to answer this question of like well how do you get co-production working between the uh, United States companies or North American companies and Asian companies, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the um, Asian film market that happens, that's going on this October uh, for three days, the third through the sixth uh, down, you know, in Asia. I forget exactly what country, sorry. I'll have, to, I'll have to put the links up later, but we'll get the links so everybody knows where to go. So there's, you can, the idea here is that you want to attend, if you want to play in this world, if you want to play in the world of co-production and working in the uh, this structure of film markets and eventually film theaters or uh, TV deals and and video on demand deals, uh, probably the best place to start. If you were starting from scratch, 
is figure out a way to get to the Asian film market, to establish relationships with uh, production companies or financing companies in this market first. Then you do a follow-up a uh, month later at the American film market, the AFM in November, mm -hmm. which happens uh, over almost seven days. Um, the same amount of buyers and sellers that go from the one market to another market, they all seem to, to tend to cross over. The biggest market, uh, obviously, is the Cannes film market in uh, the springtime. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, if you do a strategy plan this way, you can at least, you have an unfair advantage because you've done work in the Asian film market. So you can solidify those that that experience and solidify possibly building these relationships at the Asian film market, then translating that over to follow up with the American film market, because there might be some Asian production companies that have relationships with the American or the North United States film companies that if you can have an opportunity to network and build those relationships, then you may be able to find that sort of co-production that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, with that said, um, you were talking about how do you to make sure you maintain sort of the Asian influence or your Asian experience within the films that you're working at, and does that have value to the United States uh, film market? Mm -hmm. Again, it, Hollywood's all about money or any type of business. If you can figure out a way to bring an unfair advantage of them making money, uh, if you were able to to connect a Asian. Uh, production company with a United States production company and, and lay out an initial deal for a co-production deal, you have an unfair advantage because you just did that. Nobody else did that. You know, if you're able to be that producer to merge uh, or at least put on the table or have an ability to bring two uh, entities together or one or more or five entities together to essentially maybe have financing or the potential of financing in place to make this happen, then you propose yourself as someone in Hollywood that is that will separate themselves from those who have not been able to do that, and that would be your unfair advantage, that the potential of helping someone in Hollywood make money. <laughs> yep. Now, I'm going to be on the, the person I say go to, if you really are interested in the world of film markets and how to navigate the film markets, uh, my friend uh, Stacy Parks over at filmspecific.com has been doing this for a long time and she's a former sales agent and she has built, you know, for many, many years. She's, you know, I, I admire her, what she's done in the last, you know, for the last eight years or so building her online entity and service at film specific. And that's what she really specializes in. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and she has an amazing community behind that, that if you want to join, it's like a monthly uh, or a yearly annually um, online membership that you can commute with, uh, communicate with other people in that space that are working in the film market space. Uh, and you can better find out maybe if other people who've, you know, have worked with different production companies or financing in that kind of world, or be able to uh, eventually maybe hire Stacy as a consultant to come out and help, you know, broker whatever deal you have in your film. But in that world, you know, she's one of the best. Um, the, so with that said, yep. I know there were kind of high level case studies, mm -hmm. but, um, but maybe we could look at maybe a smaller scale. What happened with uh, Boon? Boon. Oh, God, help me out. What was it? I can't pronounce it. <laughs> Boon Jong Hoon? Yeah, I don't remember his name as well. Okay. So well known. Yeah. He's, he's considered, he considered himself like an expat, uh, expatriate from South Korea. But he's, he was able to build a relationship, a working relationship in uh, his, his home country with right. production companies. And 
you know, build it well enough that they're at least able to secure a uh, licensing rights uh, to a um, publication, this being a graphic novel. So it seems like anybody who's able to retain some sort of licensing rights to any sort of uh, written publication gives you the unfair advantage yep. to a leg up in the world of possibly making money for Hollywood. So I don't know if this particular film, the next film you're working on, is it an original piece or does it have any um, connection with a, an existing material that already has an audience in place? Uh, I'm working on three story ideas right now, two of them set for Japan to be shot in Japan and then one uh, in China. Uh, they're all original. And uh, what I struggled with a little bit in the beginning was to create a story that uh, that is in English, that, that would mainly be in the English language, but wow. set in Asia. So that was, to me, it's like the multi-million dollar question, like, when we can find that, then content, even content-wise, then a, a more effective co-production could happen, I think, be, regardless of budget. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think Snowpiercer is one of my, one, one of the best, like, uh, crossovers for an Asian director to, to sort of, like, make it in Hollywood because it retained, he retained his style, but it was mainly in English. 80% of it was in, was in English. Mm -hmm. And the, the story was great, and it spoke to everybody. And, of course, it had big stars and all that. It really worked for me. There were a lot where I felt like, because in my world, before I came to America, I didn't have that many Asian-American friends, for example. Like, mm. I, I had individual Asian-American friends. They were not in a big group like they are maybe here in Los Angeles because there's yeah. a lot of Asian-Americans here in Los Angeles. So in my stories, I feel it's, it's, it's a little bit weird to have an all-Asian cast speak English perfectly. So I feel like the language should be true to the characters. Mm -hmm. And the characters, the Asian characters that I'm able to write would be real, would, would really come from like Japan or China or, or wherever else in Asia. Uh, to have them, to, 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 to have the story make sense that they would have to speak English so that we can have a chance in America that was my challenge at yeah. the beginning. Yeah. So, yeah. Have you, um, a couple of years ago, um, I used to watch the channel G4 and they used to have um, Attack of the Show. And prior, before G4, they had, um, it was like Tech TV. But anyway, the, um, Chris Gore, who was um, one of the original, I think, founders of Film Threat magazine, uh, is very prominent in the film space as like a, a reporter, as a, a conduit for um, interesting cinema, uh, Chris Gore. But he used to do on G4. He would once in a while break away and do what's new in like Asian cinema. And mm -hmm. he would go to a place in Los Angeles, and I don't know where it is, but I'll do my best to find the link for you, mm -hmm. um, where this the guy who ran the uh, store, the video store, the DVD store, um, specialized and bringing Chris like the latest happenings that were happening out of Asian cinema uh, that gave a, you know, and there's a real market for that world of just, you know, offbeat or unique, you know, yeah. Asian cinema coming from all different regions of that, uh, of the world. Um, the reason I bring that up is that maybe connecting while you're in Los Angeles, we could try to find those societies or those companies or this, that, that store that exists and just having a conversation with the uh, people that are enthusiastically curating the uh, this, these movies to see what their take is on. Because, you know, 
I'm sure Chris Gore was not the only one coming to them as a press, as a journalist to get like the latest beat of what's going on with the mm -hmm. Asian market. And so what that allows you to do is, um, yeah, just broaden your network to say that you are here in town and who knows what amazing networking that yeah. can lead you to. Because um, I think from the standpoint of Hollywood, either be an agent, a manager, a producer, um, if you can bring to them a package that is very clear that yeah. says, you know, you know, hi, I'm Thomas Lim, Thomas Lim, and I worked in, you know, Asia, uh, China as an actor in this TV show, but I also made this film that we, this is what's happening with uh, Roulette City. But I was able to, with that experience, here are my um, contacts or here's my relationships. And we have built this particular production up, um, but I'm looking for a an American producer to help with, with us for the next, um, you know, co-production. Mm -hmm. Now as a producer, um, you know, producers, they make money. Basically the, the, the kind of producers looking for are those who can strike a deal. They're just looking for deals. They're not necessarily, sometimes you have producers that are really, really in it for the movies or what the movie right, says, right. but a lot of them, the ones that are successful all the time are the ones making business deals and they're making yeah. a business deal to say, Oh, cool. I see what you're offering. You have an unfair advantage because you put together this package of a market that I may not be familiar with. So yeah. you might be, you know, I don't have ID, IMDB pro anymore. Okay. Um, but if you do, it's worth it to yeah. sign up for that service online and take your time basically building a database of potential people to meet um, so you might look at a film that you think the film that you're making that maybe a film of its kind uh, had already been made. And then in that IMD pro credit list, look at everybody who's worked on it and then really kind of figure out like, okay, obviously your executive producers, maybe just the person that they'd had very little to do with the film other than they were the big name that had the connections to the distribution deal or distribution company. Uh, like the producers themselves uh, probably were working day in and day out on that particular film. An associate producer may just be somebody as like the assistant to the producer. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's it's who knows what that kind of stuff. Um, and sometimes you can't get to the big person. Like if the big person is a, a big time producer, look who their assistants are. Yeah. You, you, honestly, you could look like who has worked with them in the past as an assistant. Uh, or who are still working with them. And those people might be a lot more approachable, easy to uh, uh, get hold of via a quick Twitter search or a Facebook search. Mm -hmm. And you can send, you know, send these people messages or just something like, you know, not spammy, but you're being, you're introducing yourself. Like I saw that you work with so-and-so producer on that particular film. Um, do you mind? I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm from Singapore. See, you're adding that unfair advantage that you're exotic. You're not from, you know, or you're from Singapore, but did, from Singapore. did you move from China, right? Because you're you're working in China, right? I'm 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 ethnically Chinese, but I'm from okay. Singapore, born and raised. Okay, so see, that's something. If I was somebody in Los Angeles who was an assistant to some producer, and somebody just introduced themselves to me, and identified in a very professional way, oh yes, I did work with that big producer, and you're asking me a question, and you like the film that we worked on, and oh, very interesting. You're in town. And you're from Singapore, uh, and you want to meet. 
or talk. He goes, sure. Because everybody there in that town will be happy to tell him, tell you their two cents. <laughs> you, just have, you just have to just ask and just be in that place of receiving the information. You don't have to use all the information they use, but yeah. maybe they could help in the dialogue. Because I think you're at that place where you want to try to take as much coffee meeting, meet up for coffee. You should be like, you should be loaded up on coffee left and right in that town. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's at like a coffee bean or, um, you know, Pete's. It's funny. In LA, it seems more people are, are around Pete's Coffee than they are Starbucks. But you know, not like Starbucks is hurting. Anyway, <laughs> the, but you should be like taking these coffee meetings and try to line them up as much as possible with as many of these sort of assistants or producers or people that work in production companies, and you can kind of get a gauge of where they are and yeah. lay of the land is. And then these relationships they might turn into something where they might lead you down a path of oh, you should talk to this person. But all, all I do recommend at the end of every day, do something to decompress yourself from the Hollywood bubble of like yeah. the hype, you know, yeah. and all that coffee you're on. Yeah. Very <laughs> so important. Yep. In terms of getting back to your, your core, which is you want to make yep. films art to connect with an audience. Um, and is what you're doing as you're putting these deals together is, are they in, a, in alignment with what that core is? Mm -hmm. um, so that's something I may, you know, recommend it's a lot of a lot of hustle but sure. like who's not hustling in hollywood sure. you know? <laughs> yeah that's why i'm in la actually yeah you made you made the steps of saying like yeah. I, if i'm going to play in that big world stage then i've got to be here mm -hmm. so okay let me jump on to real quick this uh the last the questions here uh -huh. the last set of questions so I do want to go over like this is real basic, everybody. I'm, I'm not going to try to be like an attorney, uh, a financing attorney, but here's the concepts of basic film financing. Um, you have development funds. We were talking about Snowpiercer because uh, the director had a relationship with a production company in uh, Korea. They were able to at least raise the funds to write a script, and then eventually you're going to need to raise funds to make the film. And then a lot of people just don't have funds at the end of making the film, so they need to raise funds for the post-production, right? A lot of the, and the last part of it is the P&A, Prints and Advertising Distribution Funds. Now, a lot of us probably watching this or listening to this stuff is thinking crowdfunding. You know, crowdfunding, Kickstarter was popular. There was a lot of crowdfunding platforms, but I'm telling you, there are so many more platforms out there. There's like new, new crowdfunding platforms popping up left and right. Um, but the, the idea is to aggregate an audience to create enough funds to get you to where you need to be. A lot of people are trying to develop just enough funds just to make the production. And sometimes they have to come back and do another crowdfunding campaign to get post-production. And very little do you ever see a crowdfunding campaign going, we need money for prints and advertising distribution. You only see it for development funds, production, or post-production. I, I don't think I've ever seen a crowdfunding campaign uh, set up for a distribution fund. And the reason being is the last, I just did a, a talk in Dallas, Texas at the Film Innovation Lab with uh, Jeff Vaught over at the um, Imagination Media Studios. I had an opportunity to speak about the state of distribution. And um, also there was uh, Michael Kane, who is a, a producer and the, one of the original founders of the Dallas International Film Festival, or I think the Dallas Film Festival. He was a really such a nice man, but he gave it this very interesting talk about the state of film financing, you know, and he lives in Texas because in Dallas, Texas, because Michael Caine 
is basically facilitating uh, money for a lot of rich oil people, right? <laughs> In terms of the film business. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting is the last stage of funding, the P&A, prints and advertising. You don't see really prints anymore because there's not a lot of films being shot in film that have to have a, a lab processing of a you know film reels because uh, that's cost a lot of money. They're, now they're like hard drives or a file encoding, but there's advertising and distribution funds needed to get the finished film out to the market, either into theaters or on video on demand or on DVD and whatnot. So in terms of investors, in terms of you trying to see if you can get a Asian co-production company to have a co-production relationship with an, a United States company, uh, you're only the reason I'm trying to get this co-production working because you're hoping the production companies come together and raise the financing to make the film. The case of Snowpiercer is that the Weinstein company has come in only at the tail end. So they bought the licensing rights from a um, Asian uh, production company that pretty much put up all the funds to make the film for Snowpiercer. So the Weinsteins get to come in at the tail end and say, we will take care of the P&A or the distribution budget. And it was their decision to say, we're going to do day and date. We're going to put it on video on demand as well as on uh, theaters. Because that was sort of big and controversial because they decided like this film may not be uh, warranted enough to try to test out just the traditional, let's release in the theaters for this window. And then eventually we'll release it on DVD, home cable, video on demand, whatever. They decided to release it all together because maybe that's all the money they had or they wanted to experiment with it. Now, for anybody understanding in the world of film financing investing, all the money is like, for an investor, it's much better to be someone coming in at the very tail end of a production because mm -hmm. the film is done. They can see it for what it is. And then they decide, like, I will raise or put in the financing for the advertising and distribution funds. The difference is they know that the production company is at the mercy of these last remaining funds. And so they also know that in the contract, they can extract the money. Once the money grosses a certain amount, they can get their money back out plus whatever percentage. It's always in the film financing world, they call it uh, last one in first one out. So mm -hmm. when everybody's ever trying to construct a film financing plan, uh, the, the people that lose money in the film investing is the people, the first people to invest. If you're the first entity to invest into a film product uh, project, you're probably going to lose because you're the last one in line of the investors to get your money back or get your money out. Mm -hmm. Which is why you're seeing sort of the, the more um, prolific or a company like the Weinstein's and so on coming in at the tail end. Um, and that's, and that's where all investors want to be. They don't want to be in the development funds. They don't want to be in the production funds and they don't want to be in the post-production funds maybe, but they all really want to be in the, the advertising and um, distribution funds because they know it's more of a, a sure bet. They can see what they have in front of them. And they also know they can get the, their money out first because that's the way the contract is constructed. So, with that knowledge, you can do your best to um, have to weather the storm of maybe you do the development and some of the production with a Asian company that you've already worked with, you know, mm -hmm. then you bring it to the United States to maybe do finish the production or you 
get the post-production funds or you bring it to a, a United States company to get the distribution funds. Because if you're saying that you're, if 15 million is normal here in the United States, but you can make a film for like a million to 3 million, that would do very well theatrically in the Asian markets. Yeah. Maybe that's your unfair advantage. Maybe yeah. telling a United States producer production company, you know what, instead of trying to raise 15 million, we can raise one, three million, but let's start with the Asian market first and then take the 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 press and the, the, the money that comes from that and then see if we can't go to a wide release um, with an American co-production. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why the Asian, uh, Asian productions are cheaper is because the stars are cheaper. Yeah. The stars are way cheaper. So um, now here's the thing that, people use gosh here's a little trick that the the film markets use when you're trying to get a more worldwide known star to be in your project mm -hmm. is they just have to have like one scene <laughs> you know uh -huh. what I mean? it's, yeah, and, yeah. and then there's their faces are, and that's what you advertise in the trailer and that's what you yeah. advertise in the poster. poster yeah um and it might be a scene where say it's like a prominent um you know, action star or something that's, that's like, say it's uh, Sylvester Stallone. I don't mm -hmm. know. He still has a lot of weight internationally. Yeah. Yep. So maybe he has one scene that's shot in Los Angeles where he's like the overlord or the mentor that yeah. gives the main actor, the lead actor in your film, some bit of advice or whatever it is or something, you know, however you construct the story, there's always that mentor character. Mm -hmm. And those mentor characters could be perfect for a name star internationally. And um, as long as you can convince a production company to put up the money, uh, you know, for that particular star, um, they make it easy for them. You know, either shoot it in Los Angeles near their home. So it's not like it's like half a day's work, you know, yeah. they're like, yeah. oh, cool. Or, um, or if you sweeten the deal and maybe you, you offer them an opportunity to travel to Singapore. Like maybe there's an actor who's like, oh, I get to act in this movie for like one day, but while I'm there, they're giving basically a week's vacation. Mm -hmm. it's, right, cra right. it's crazy what you can get away with. And, you know, there's no rules and, you know, begging and, and scratching for somebody to be part of your production. So I don't know. I mean, like I said, I'm not the expert in this type of thing. And I, I would definitely you know, check out Stacey Park's stuff over at filmspecific.com. Um, that's her world and she could really um, help navigate you or any other filmmaker listening if you want to play in that film market world. Sure. Um, but what we can learn from this though, if you're not playing in that world, if you are definitely like just making a film uh, with private equity or crowdfunding campaigns and you're just releasing it online, at least you know how the game is played. At least yeah. you know why, like, okay, um, why the different stages of financing work and what the uh, incentive or the interest is for an investor to come in um, and why you see that kind of happen on larger scale projects. Mm -hmm. so, right, right, yeah. Um, let me jump to the last question as we okay. go, and then we'll go into, okay, question number three kind of ties in. So you're asking, what is the culture of finding an agent or manager in Los Angeles or Hollywood? Mm -hmm. um, and I mentioned the words incentive. Now, there's a great book by uh, uh, called Freakonomics. And the, the big takeaway of that book was that all humans are motivated, motivated by incentive. Mm 
right. if you really want to know what everybody's you know deal is <laughs> you're trying to get into the head of anybody in terms of when you're communicating and working and uh, trying to build a working relationship it is always ask yourself what is the incentive of this person you know um and so that would help and what we know is the incentive is like uh, can you make hollywood money that's the that's they will open their arms to any new money or anybody can help them make money <laughs> that they are that's one industry that doesn't care if you're an ex-con if you're, <laughs> you know gosh you know god awful like uh, somebody's been like a past pedophile you know mm -hmm. convicted somebody like that i mean they don't care as long as you can make the money they will hire you you know sure. you can be a former drug addict it doesn't matter it, it all happens so that is the incentive of hollywood and so you can look at your unfair advantage and ask this question to solving the mystery of an agent to manager um it's all changing it's a wild west you'll see big top agencies right now looking to um represent tech startup companies they realize that the yeah a lot of the big agencies they're not even they had to diversify in order to keep their high level of pay and all the agents and junior agents in their whole company running because the star salary there was a time several years ago where an agency had a client list of like some of the top stars and those stars were making you know 20 million dollars a picture you yeah. know 10 million 10 million, and now you hardly ever see those kind of payouts so what does an agency do if they're tied to a percentage of the earnings of their top stars and their stars aren't making that much anymore they've had to diversify into the sports world they've oh. had to diversify into the tech startup world uh video just they were all over the place because okay I mean, if you want to be crass about it, they're just, they're kind of whoring themselves out. Like I got to fit, they, they got to represent whoever can make the money. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it depends what the deal is, you know, anywhere from 10, 20, 25% of what, you know, a talent can make uh, or earn is it, the takeaway for manager or an agent is anywhere from 10 to, you know, 25%. Um, so but the benefit of having that kind of stuff, of having those relationships, is they do um, should have access, uh, the middleman, to the gatekeepers, to producers that you're looking for, uh, to have relationships with, to production companies, financing, that kind of stuff. So the difference is, like you probably discovered this already, you know, an agency, an agent usually works for an agency. So they have their incentive and their motivation is driven by making money for themselves and the agency. Um, a managing or a management company has an ability to not only manage the talent that if you sign with a management company, but they have the ability to also serve as producer. Absolutely. So you'll see a lot of production companies in Los Angeles are also management companies. So they also are tied to managing talent um, or their client list, but they're also able to bundle these packages together. So again, that is a, an amazing motivation, incentive, for a company like that because they say i see talent in this actor director producer whatever it is and that we can make money off of let me bundle it with some other people in our our client list and see if we can't sell this package off as you know and raise the funds that way and then my fee is like i make a fee as a manager and i make a fee as a producer <laughs> you know they're gonna, they're gonna i'm gonna figure out so many different ways i can make money off it again it comes down to incentive and the incentive and the incentive is to make money mm -hmm. right you know, if you play in that world so 
what you can do is that if you want to get an agent or manager is really target maybe the exact agent and management company you want to work with not just like take any agent or manager you know just like you be you have a game plan and say because there's only a handful it's not like there's a lot of them you can do your due diligence online on imdb pro and see like a producer director or somebody you admire and see who their agents and managers are there's another way if you have money <laughs> if you have money and you really want to you know work this to your advantage is in to hire the same legal firm <laughs> that all these people are represented by uh -huh. because lawyers always talk i mean to other lawyers and some it's very not uncommon to see someone working in that world have a lawyer who brokered the deal but then also becomes like an executive producer on a film <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and you know the reality is most uh studio heads are like you know former lawyers it's just mm -hmm. what it is so if you want to do a little hack instead of trying to get a manager agent that way first just hire a, one of the lawyers that plays maybe there's a junior lawyer that is in the same field or same um circles of all the people that you want to connect with yeah. Hire them to do what? Hire hire the lawyer to yeah, just say produce the film as the attorney of the film. No, no, you, you probably just hire them to represent you. <laughs> just go, hey, I want to enlist your service as a manager. You mean? Just as a, like I, I'm hiring you as a lawyer to manage whatever deals that I you know uh, oh, okay. build up as as me as a producer. Sure. They might go, oh no 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 no. I mean, but it, but if if you're willing to pay like a retaining fee might be high or at least have that initial this, uh, conversation that lawyer may be able to refer you to another type of lawyer that can handle you representing you as a uh, writer director producer you know mm -hmm. because and then in your conversations you might have to pay like a fee to this lawyer but in your conversations they may be able to direct you to the right people to talk to right, right. you know because if their motivation is to make more money off you and if you're paying for them anyway to have a consultation service in your consultation service you may be able to get a gigantic list of references right. you know what i mean so the difference is where you're hoping the idea is not to have like hope marketing you're not you don't right. you're not hoping that an agent or manager finds you or discovers you if you push and to be more proactive you're like i'm gonna hire a lawyer i'm gonna have to put some money aside to have a consulta consultation session and then say be very poignant about what you want that meeting to come out of is like you kind of want to see if they have a, a a recommended rolodex somebody that they can refer you to because you can imagine if a entertainment lawyer sent a message on your behalf to a production company or producer how much more effective that would be uh than you going cold like yeah. cold calling yeah. or cold yeah. emailing yeah so the funny thing is you just did the job of an agent <laughs> you know Mm -hmm. But it's the idea to get an agent or manager is usually what happens is say something happens and you just got your project or the people you met and they're ready to make a deal. Um, and you don't, at that particular time, you can make a decision of like, I rather have this work through an agent or manager, or I can decide that I won't have an agent or manager and I will just read the damn contract. Like, you know, I mean, the, take your time like if you were proposed a contract like this production company or producer wants to license or come on uh, as part of your project you know what does the contract say 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's why you would hire a lawyer at that point to make sure that you're not getting uh, screwed over if it's all standard. Mm-hmm. If once you are playing in that world, believe me, an agent or manager is going to come knocking on your door because if they see someone who's a serious player or someone who's serious in making money, um, they're going to sniff it out like uh, what they call like ambulance chaser uh, lawyers, you know. Or if you feel like you need to level up. If you had that very specific list of agents that you wanted to be agencies you want to be part of, then you could propose them. It says I am, you know, I work with this lawyer or have your lawyer contact that agency and say, you know, my client, you know, uh, Thomas Lim, is just negotiated a deal with this Asian production company. Um, would you be interested in meeting with him? Um, he's looking for representation as well here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a powerful reference. Yeah, you had to pay for it, but it kind of gets you direct a direct line to the exact agencies you want to work with or management companies you want to work with. If yep. you decide to go down that path, me personally, you know, I'm not. I decide that I'm, I don't want to be part of that world yet. I'm not gonna. You know, who knows what happens in the future? I yep. definitely see my projection of I'm making little films that I sell online. That is yep. that is me. But for you and anybody else listening out there, if you're playing the Hollywood game, if you are realizing that this is the dream I want to have is to work in the film market world and work in the film world, then these are recommendations of how to get around and work the networking angle. So that it gives you a better chance of lining up all the right people in place to eventually, you know, get the film finance or get mm-hmm. an opportunity to play in that world. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, you mean have a, have a production, sort of like put some elements in place before before reaching out, be it a lawyer or an agent or a manager, right? Yeah, I think you don't have to put, maybe you don't even shoot anything. A few of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, again, you're always, the one takeaway from this whole session, as long as you can always ask yourself, incentive. what is my unfair advantage? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what is the incentive of the other person? Right, right. And can I match, can I, can I, Put in alignment my unfair advantage with their incentive. If I, if you see a benefit there, if you say like, you know what, what I offer as my unfair advantage can be a very huge benefit to this person that I need to connect with or go in business with. And then it's your job to communicate and market and sell that benefit to that person. Um, so whatever that means, if it means you you know, drawing a bunch of storyboards and doing an animatic to sell the idea uh, or to sell that idea to a or or negotiate a deal with an Asian um, production company that you maybe have relationships with already and just saying that, you know what, I need to utilize this unfair advantage of this relationship we have here to then take it to the next level with a uh, United States company, an American company. Whatever decisions you come down to, just always at the end of the day, try to check yourself to say, okay, am I clear what my unfair advantage is? And am I clear what their incentive is? And are they matching up? And am I doing a good job communicating those benefits? So that can mean anything. It doesn't, I, you know, my recommendations of, of like saying, like building something first and then coming, um, that only makes sense if those two things are in alignment, right. unfair advantage and incentive. Mm. So, right. That, but use your creativity because you might be able to do, you know, I, Hollywood is full of crazy stories. Hollywood is full of like a writer producer who did a, a cartoon animatic 
of the first scene uh, to sell it to the, the film company that eventually bought into it because they needed to really see what he was talking about. You know, uh, it's not uncommon for a director producer to walk around with a lookbook of what mm -hmm. the film looks like. So it's like I get a real good idea what the film is about. Um, you know, that's part of it. Like if you have a really gorgeous lookbook of what you want your film to look like and how it work out, uh, maybe in like a, an outline suggestion of, you know, known worldwide stars that would have a one day, um, not a cameo, but they would have a one day co-starring role mm -hmm. playing the mentor character, whatever it is, like have that list of so people will see exactly where, what your plan is. And then if on top of that, if you had some sort of a small amount of money, like again, everybody in film in the film financing world is like nobody wants to be the first person in, as we learned. Yeah. Because the first person who puts money in is usually they don't make their money back. Yep. So if you can show so some form that you were able to raise funds, maybe it's crowdfunding. Maybe just having crowdfunding just gets you to the, the first level, which is essentially what Kickstarter is, why it's called Kickstarter. Yep. To their own omission, they say like we were always designed to provide just that enough kickstarting funds to allow the filmmaker to continue down the path right? So because they know the first people in don't get their money back. Yep. So they don't offer investments on Kickstarter. It's like, it's straight up. You give me money that you're not going to see. Maybe I'll give you a perk, you know, that you pay for later that maybe end up working out, whatever. But the whole point is if you can bring those elements in and you just level up, you know, maybe you need just enough funds to get the development going. Maybe you need just enough funds to make a first half of the production go. And maybe if you get to that magic stage where you need just funds for production, post-production, once you get into the need, the needs for post-production and uh, prints and advertisement and distribution funds, then you're talking, then you're like a real player because you have these, a finished film yeah. and all these things in place. So mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. It's interesting because a lot of things in America is quite different from uh, than where I'm from. For example, like back in Asia, like a manager and an agent is essentially the same thing, same person. Yeah. Yeah. There's no difference between manager and agent. So when I when I first came here, people were telling me, oh, manager first or agent first, and I didn't even know what they were talking about. I was like, isn't it just an agent? We just yeah. call them agents. That's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, it is. It's every market's interesting. I guess differently. I'm not familiar with enough about other than what I've read and and people I've met that worked in uh, the different uh, all over the different you know, country, uh, all, yeah. all over the different world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting. Uh, there was years ago when I was peddling a, a film, trying to get an independent film made uh, the traditional way, you know, getting the right producers in place, getting the project shown at the, the right studios, uh, all that kind of stuff and other production companies and, and hustling my film product uh, project on the American film at the American film market. Um, you know, just a number of things that happened that led down this path of me coming up here to Portland, Oregon. Um, one of them was interesting. A, a woman that was a, a, f a foreign film buyer uh, that worked in Singapore or for a Singapore company, you know, very sweet. I met her uh, at one of the first startups at uh, Stacey Parks Film Specific uh, Group, meetup group at the AFM. And unfortunately, this tragically, like we were Facebook friends and we we're talking and next thing you know, I guess it's the crazy message that she had passed away in, oh, no. because she had, she was pregnant and she had died at childbirth. It was like oh, the most, no. like, like a number of things would happen that you meet some wonderful people and something tragic happens. Oh, and, no. um, and only bring that up is because it's supposed to humanize all of us and it's right. supposed to make all of us think like, what is it that we're really doing? Like, yeah. what, why am I doing this? 
And that's why I'm, I was trying to dig deeper at that question. Like I know the dream, I, I totally understand. And everybody understands the dream of yeah, can yeah. I get a film on the theatrical wide release? That, that would be the ultimate dream. But really, if you pull those layers away, what's really matters is that connection you have with an audience yep. that is responding to the material that you create. And then they get a transformation and you get a transformation because of the interaction. And if you can stay true to that, that should hopefully help steer your decision making um, while you're, you know, while you're on this journey. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, it's too, sometimes it's too easy to get caught up in the deal. Like yep. I said, if when you go to the when you go to film markets, a lot of the people that you see operating, especially at the American film market, well, I'm sorry, is you'll notice that the one equation that's missing from that whole event or at any film market is the audience. There's there's no there's no representative of the audience at those film markets. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is somebody is working their asses off just to try to make a deal. I have a film product, I'm trying to make a deal with a foreign film entity buyer or distribution buyer, and if I make the deal happen, it's like that is what they're celebrating. That is their entire incentive. So they're they're marketing incentive their their business uh, um, ideas their their whole all their actions are all based off trying to make that deal mm -hmm. now whether or not the film does well or not that's almost like a second thought it's an afterthought where that's what sometimes leaves the filmmakers who get the chance to work in those in that that part of the industry disillusioned because yep. they were like i forgot why i was making this in the first place they missed that feedback, the interaction. So with that said, you know, that, um, I, again, I'm not an expert in the Hollywood way, but from an outside perspective and the, the worked in it, looking at just basic strategies, um, I'm trying to give you some basic rules of this, uh, guidance that maybe could help. So you don't get too caught up on something that may steer you away from your real core, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for them. Very useful. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we can wrap it up here, but uh, did you have any other questions? I know I talked a lot, but um, anything, any afterthoughts? Um, not questions per se, but as you were saying, the last point about, like, I think the point is art versus, like, oh, let's call it art, art versus business. Yeah. Like the business tends to steer the artist, so to speak, away from the art because the business is so powerful. And I think one of the reasons is because film is such an expensive thing to make probably maybe one of the most expensive art forms in in the world yeah and, and the artist so to speak or the filmmaker let's call him maybe especially in the beginning stages i feel that this is just my opinion i feel that in the beginning stages for a filmmaker a writer director or a director producer a creator the art for him should be to balance what he what, what his voice really is and what the business really wants him to do. I don't think he should lose his voice completely, but I think, in my opinion, he should compromise at first. Not lose it, but compromise, so that he can make the next one after the first one, and his voice hopefully will get louder and louder with each project that goes on. And my personal goal for making a next film is so that I can make yet a next one. Because that's, that alone is, is the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life, to make just, just making one film after another, if I yeah. could. So 
yeah, that's just my afterthought in terms me, of art and all that. It's interesting. I, they hear the desire of this, and that's like all of our desire too. It's like, can I make one to make the next? That's what that would that's what would make all of us as filmmakers just happy, you know. <laughs> it's like the big thing. But here's interesting the um, the balance between art and business. Um, I guess it's really fascinating because this we can I don't know how we can uh, equate this to the plight of the independent, okay. um, but we could try. Okay. So when Steve Jobs, you know, he bought Pixar from Lucas uh, in like 1983, 85, or whatever it was, because uh, the Pixar has started under Lucasfilm, mm -hmm. um, one of the divisions. But when George Lucas was going through a nasty divorce after the Return of Jedi with his first wife, he had to sell off part of his property. And and Steve Jobs was coming off getting fired from Apple. <laughs> so he bought um, Pixar. Okay. Um, but George Lucas said to him, you know, you have to be really understand these guys at Pixar. They All they want to do is make a feature film, animated feature film. This is like 1985, you know. It took, so like f 10 years later, it was 10 years in the making. For, so for like 10 years, Pixar made no money. They were almost like, they were almost exclusively like uh, paid for by Steve Jobs. <laughs> like he funded them for like 10 years. I, that's loosely. Uh, Pixar was getting into like doing commercials and stuff like that, but they they weren't really running like a production, like an ad agency or like that. The basic business model of Pixar initially was a film production company and everybody in los angeles has a production company the problem with the business model of all film production companies that always somehow end up in bankruptcy or just disappear altogether is because they rely on this concept of one film funds the next film oh. so as soon as one film falls apart it can level the entire company mm -hmm. so Steve Jobs saw this, he realized it, and as soon as Pixar made the first Toy Story and he knew it was going to be big, Jobs took the momentum of that success of that film and said, we're going to take Pixar public. We're going to offer it up to the uh, public trading and create an IPO and create Pixar Studios. Because the concept there, business-wise, was they needed to have a large surplus of cash flow to weather the storm when the day came when they didn't make something that was a hit. So you look at the tech space, how many flops did Apple create? They were making product left and right. They're, th th that's just part of the business. So you kind of have to allow yourself to know, all of us independents, that we're going to make something that's shitty. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not going to make money. The difference is, can we put a business system in place, even on a small scale, even at the most micro scale, that allows cash flow. So it's interesting because if you look at it, you look at all these successful filmmakers, like legends, Ron Howard. You think that Ron Howard or Steven Spielberg, like I just mentioned earlier, like they have made plenty of money that they could just finance their own films. <laughs> they don't. No successful filmmaker ever puts really their money into their own yeah, films, yeah. very rarely. Mm -hmm. The fact that Ron Howard had to go for the first time in his entire career where he wasn't getting the financing from a major studio where he had to make his film rush the race car movie with chris hemsworth um he had to go to all the film markets and pedal and beg and scrape the money together this is ron howard we're talking about 
is because the market has changed. The thing is for us to look at a perspective of the Uber independent filmmaker, the independent filmmaker, is can we create that our own version of the cash flow? Can we create our own version of the uh, publicly traded company to make sure that we weather the storm so that we're able to make more films, one film after another film? And, you know, Walt Disney said it best. He was quoted as saying, we don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies. <laughs> so with that said, um, we look at the past masters and what allowed them to be successful. And I think it could be done on a small scale. So I know that desire to like, can I make a film to make the next film? Well, you might have something right in front of you is your own experiences that allow you to create some sort of generate that cash flow. I don't know what it is. I kind of do. I actually talk about it in that book I wrote, how to make and sell your film online and survive the Hollywood implosion while doing it. <laughs> it sounds so bad. It's a long title, but I do <laughs> give it an example of how the Uber independent filmmaker can do that. Um, so, um, but since we're running long in this session here, okay. uh, that'll be another time, I guess. Okay. <laughs> but okay. listen, you, you are always welcome to come back on and kind of share with us your experience and, okay. and share us with us your wins and triumphs and uh, as well as heartaches. You know, uh, <laughs> it'd be great to see the journey of all the filmmakers have had been on have an opportunity to be on this show uh, sure. to share with us where where they've gone. Um, sure, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it'll be my pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Let me uh, present this last bit of slides for everyone who's hung out this long. The idea here, guys, if you stayed around this long, you shouldn't go away empty-handed. And that's why I offer a free video on demand and digital download report over at freevodreports.com. So if you want some video on demand sales projections, like if you're building your next project and you're kind of wondering like, well, if I'm not going to the theatrical premiere, and I'm going to have to take my film to the video on demand market. What are, how are other films performing? Um, and it's a mystery and there's a reason behind that, but you can figure it all out. If you get this free report, um, when you sign up, you sign up to be part of the filmmaker of uh, filmmaker, the film trooper email list, and you get this free weekly report sent to your inbox every week. And that's over at freevodreports.com. So that's it for, this session of Film Marketing Fridays. Uh, I want to say goodbye real quick, um, Thomas. Yeah, okay. everybody. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you. I'll see you guys next time as well. And uh, that's it. Okay, cool. Oh, look at my head. I, I hit the wrong stop. <laughs>